Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This is the Anesthesia Learn on the Go podcast series from the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology. In these episodes, we will provide a high-yield clinical review of some of the common topics encountered by anesthesiologists at all levels. The following episode will be recorded by a member of our department at UK. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at UK Anesthesia and subscribe to the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology YouTube channel for our video cast. Now fire up your headphones, relax, and let's talk anesthesia. Hello, everyone. My name is Eric Johnson. I'm a current PGY4 CA3 resident within the University of Kentucky's Department of Anesthesiology. This podcast will be covering intracranial hypertension. By the end of this podcast, it is my hope that the listener will be able to describe the determinants of intracranial pressure, understand cerebral blood flow, and how it is affected by metabolic activity, temperature, oxygenation, and ventilation, recognize the signs and symptoms of intracranial hypertension, as well as understand the management and anesthetic implications for taking care of patients with elevated intracranial pressure. So let's start with the basics. Intracranial pressure, or more commonly known as ICP, is the pressure within the intracranial cavity. Now the cranium is a closed space with an average volume of about 1.7 liters. It contains only three things, brain tissue, cerebral spinal fluid, and blood. The normal pressure within this space is about five to 15 millimeters of mercury. The Monroe Kelly Doctrine states that since this is a closed space with a fixed volume, an increase in the volume of one of these components will lead to a rise in the pressure within the entire system unless it is compensated for by an equal reduction in the volume of another component. The ability to compensate for large increases in ICP is greatly limited. and Once the compensatory mechanisms are exhausted, the results of prolonged ICP elevation can be devastating and include impaired perfusion and herniation. Another important concept to understand is cerebral blood flow. As the Monroe Kelly Doctrine states, through manipulating cerebral blood flow, we can mitigate an increases in ICP. Cerebral blood flow, or CBF, is auto-regulated to meet the regional oxygen demands of the brain. The process of auto-regulation typically occurs within a range of mean arterial pressures between 50 and 150 millimeters of mercury, but may be shifted higher in patients who are chronically hypertensive. Normal CBF flow occurs at a rate of about 50 milliliters of blood, per 100 grams of brain tissue per minute, and is influenced through multiple physiological factors. We'll discuss four, metabolic demand, temperature, oxygenation, and ventilation. Firstly, metabolic demand. As autoregulation occurs to match oxygen delivery and demand by reducing the oxygen requirement of the brain, which is commonly referred to as the cerebral metabolic oxygen requirement, or CMRO2 for short, we can usually reduce cerebral blood flow and therefore reduce ICP. In regards to temperature, temperature is directly related to cerebral metabolic activity, as well as directly affecting vasomotor tone. By reducing the temperature of the brain, we can reduce its metabolic activity and therefore reduce the blood flow through autoregulation, while also promoting vasoconstriction, which can further decrease cerebral blood flow. The net effect is about a 6% decrease in CBF with every one degree change in temperature. However, therapeutic hypothermia below 35 degrees centigrade has been associated with a decrease in CBF that is greater than CMRO2, which can possibly potentiate ischemia and should therefore be avoided. 
In regards to ventilation, cerebral blood flow has a linear relationship with the partial pressure of CO2 between 20 and 80 millimeters of mercury. For every one millimeter of mercury reduction in PaCO2, we get a 2 to 4% reduction in CBF. Therefore, hyperventilation can be an effective strategy to lower intracranial pressure acutely. However, in similar fashion to how therapeutic hypothermia can produce ischemia, extreme hypocapnia, usually below 25 millimeters of mercury, can produce maximal vasoconstriction with resultant tissue hypoxia. Furthermore, the effect of hyperventilation on cerebral blood flow and ICP is short-lived. After approximately six hours, the decrease in CO2 is offset by a decrease in bicarbonate within the CSF, causing the pH to normalize and negating this effect on cerebral blood flow. And lastly, oxygenation. The partial pressure of oxygen has minimal effect on CBF except in the settings of significant hypoxemia or PaO2 of less than 50 millimeters of mercury. Below this threshold, CBF increases dramatically to promote the delivery of oxygen. Likewise, vasoconstriction does not occur until PaO2 exceeds 350 millimeters of mercury. Another important concept to understand is the principle of cerebral perfusion pressure, which is fundamentally the driving pressure for forward blood flow and is defined physiologically as the difference between either mean arterial pressure and either ICP or CVP, whichever is higher. Now that we've outlined the underlying physiology, let us begin to discuss some of the clinical implications. In regards to the etiology, as the intracranial pressure only consists of three components, an increase in any one of these three can precipitate intracranial hypertension. In regards to brain parenchyma or brain tissue, any patient who has intracranial malignancy or those with cerebral edema, Cerebral edema can further be subdivided into cytotoxic, vasogenic, or interstitial in nature. The second component is blood. Patients with any sort of intracranial bleed, including subdural hematomas, epidural hematomas, intracerebral hemorrhage, or subarachnoid hemorrhage, or even AVMs. And lastly, CSF. Excessive CSF production or impaired drainage may also precipitate rises in ICP. Examples include hydrocephalus or pseudotumor cerebri also known as benign idiopathic intracranial hypertension. In regards to clinical presentation, the initial signs and symptoms of elevated intracranial pressure include headache, nausea, and vomiting. Papilledema is often detected on fundoscopic exam if that is available. As the pressure continues to rise, these patients may display depressed level of consciousness and focal neurological symptoms based on what regions of the brain are compressed and ischemic. These patients may also display Cushing's triad, which consists of hypertension, bradycardia, and an irregular respiratory pattern. The hypertension is our body's attempt to perfuse against the increased intracranial pressure with a reflexive bradycardia that is me mediated by the carotid sinus baroreceptors, as well as intracranial compression of the vagus nerve. Lastly, the irregular respiratory rate is mediated by compression of the medullary respiratory centers. In regards to diagnosis, any patient who is suspected of having intracranial hypertension warrants emergency neuroimaging, which is able to demonstrate both regions of parenchymal compression as well as possibly even etiology. Elevated intracranial pressure is a medical and possibly surgical emergency. Once diagnosis is confirmed, management is focused 
on addressing the cause of the elevated intracranial pressure. Until definitive therapy can be accomplished, steps should be taken to reduce the ICP acutely, to maintain cerebral perfusion, and support the patient's hemodynamics. As with most emergency situations, it is helpful to fall back on the basics, the ABCs. In regards to the airway, many of these patients will require intervention due to inability to protect their own airway in the setting of depressed mental status or even anticipated surgical intervention. Most often will require rapid sequence induction. These patients are unlikely to be MPO. Furthermore, rapid securing of the airway is important to prevent the development of hypoxia or hypercarbia, which could result in an increase in cerebral blood flow and worsen intracranial hypertension. In regards to induction agents and paralytics use, succinylcholine and ketamine should be avoided as these are associated with an increase in intracranial pressure. Out of all the hypnotics, atomidate is a good choice as it can decrease the CMRO2 while maintaining cerebral perfusion pressure. In regards to their breathing, once their airway is secured, you should consider hyperventilating these patients, at least in the short term, with a target PaCO2 of 26 to 30 millimeters of mercury. Hypoxia should be avoided, but 100% oxygen isn't necessary either. And hyperoxia can even precipitate free radical production and promote vasoconstriction. Circulation. Invasive blood pressure monitoring should be employed to ensure adequate cerebral perfusion pressure is maintained, as well as allow serial ABG measurements to determine the PaCO2. Central venous access should be obtained for CVP monitoring, as well as the infusion of vesicants such as vasopressors or hypertonic saline. Traditionally, the internal jugular vein was avoided due to concern of impeding cerebral drainage. However, there is very little evidence to support this. Hemodynamic targets include a goal cerebral perfusion pressure of 70 millimeters of mercury or a MAP greater than 80. Other initial steps which should be taken include elevating the patient's head to 30 degrees, avoid hyperthermia with the use of Tylenol or cooling blankets, or in severe cases, heat exchange catheters. These patients should be started on a sedation in attempts to reduce the CMRO2 and prevent agitation. Hyperosmolar therapy with either hypertonic saline or osmotic diuretic mannitol. The goal of both is to promote the movement of free water out of the cranium and into the vascular space, but be judicious with either in the setting of patients with disrupted blood-brain barriers. EVDs. If surgical intervention is not possible immediately, an external ventricular drain can be placed to facilitate ICP monitoring, which allows for optimization of mean arterial pressure and cerebral perfusion pressure and can also allow for the drainage of CSF. Goal ICP should be less than 22 millimeters of mercury with a cerebral perfusion pressure of 70. If despite all of these interventions, ICP remains elevated, burst suppression can be employed through the use of barbiturates and EEG monitoring. If these patients come to the operating room, all of the same principles apply. Ultimately, time is brain and the emphasis should be on allowing the surgeons to begin working as quickly as possible. Preoperatively, if not already sent, a baseline CBC, BMP, coags, and type and cross should be obtained, but not at the expense of delayed arrival to the OR. Induction. The airway should be secured with an RSI technique that maintains cerebral perfusion pressure. 
Hypercarbia and hypoxia should be avoided, as well as acetylcholine and ketamine. Arterial and central venous access should be gained for the reasons outlined earlier, but not at the expense of delaying the surgery. Maintenance. Volatile anesthetics are potent vasodilators, which uncouple our body's normal relationship with cerebral blood flow and CMRO2, potentially increasing CBF and ICP. Therefore, general anesthesia should be maintained in these patients through an intravenous anesthetic or combination which uses less than half a mac of volatile agent combined with intravenous agents. Administration of hyperosmolar therapy or decadron should be discussed with the surgeon. Hemodynamic goals, as outlined earlier, include keeping their cerebral perfusion pressure greater than 70. If your ICP is not known, keeping a MAP of at least 80 is reasonable. In regards to extubation, these patients are unlikely to be extubated at the end of the case. Reasons include depressed mental status, expected large volume fluid shifts in the setting of hyperosmolar therapy, use of sedation to decrease CMRO2, intentional hyperventilation, and control of hemodynamics. Other postoperative management should include elevation of the head, avoidance of hyperthermia, stress ulcer prophylaxis, and possible anti-epileptic prophylaxis. So this concludes our discussion of intracranial hypertension. I know we covered a lot, so before finishing, I wanted to highlight what I really hoped that y'all would get out of this podcast. One, the intracranial vault is a closed space with only three components, blood, brain, and CSF. That's it. An increase in any one of these, if not compensated for by a decrease in another, can cause a rise in ICP. Two, CBF is affected by CMRO2, temperature, PaCO2, and PaO2. Three, intracranial hypertension is an emergency as an elevated ICP can result in tissue hypoxia and herniation. Four, follow your ABCs, rapid airway securement, hyperventilation, access and maintain adequate cerebral perfusion pressure at all times. And lastly, time is brain. Medical or surgical therapy should be administered in a timely fashion in an attempt to save as much tissue as possible. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you all found this helpful. Please feel free to contact me if there are any questions, concerns, or comments. Thank you very much, and have a great day. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have ideas for future podcasts, please reach out to us via email at learnonthego at uky.edu. Don't forget to follow us on our social media accounts as well on Instagram and Twitter, UK Anesthesia. From all of us at UK Department of Anesthesiology, have a great day.